You know the, fra- the phrase where you can kill two birds with one stone, two good benefits that can happen from one activity on your part. That is a phenomenon we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be looking at You look at it kind of like, kind of like a man who marries this woman. He, he, he knows it already, and it's one of the things that draws him to her. But the, the greatest thing he can do for himself is to go, into a, go out deer hunting, right? And he goes up on one of those, uh, I keep calling them blinds, but they're not blinds. What are those called? deer stands he's got his deer stand and she's got hers a hundred yards from him and she loves it as much as he does and so he gets to take his wife out deer hunting and he gets his time alone and she loves him for doing it and so the same action benefits him twice double dipping I call it double dipping like paid vacation you know what paid vacation is right you're getting paid to work but you're on vacation that's a double dipping thing kind of like double chocolate chip cookies it's chocolate but it's double it's that that's what we're talking about first timothy chapter 2 verse 2 look at it with me for a second he says for you pray for kings and those in authority that we may live a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified peaceful and quiet godly and dignified all right this is good he says and pleases god so when you live peaceful quiet godly dignified you're pleasing god how many in here want to please god yeah yeah see that's what you're here for that's our number one priority at least that's what we're saying on this sunday as we gather on the hill in the morning right we want to please god but he said he goes on to say who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. This is good. Not only does it put a smile on God's face, which is our first priority, but it's what the world needs to see from us, which is our second priority. Please our God and draw the world as God wants us to. Two things happening with one way of life. Quiet, holy, and dignified. It's double dipping. As you live that way, you're accomplishing two great things. And I love these expressions. Next slide, if you would. I'm going to put a peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified. Peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified. Would you say that with me? Peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified. This is what we, this is what we pray for our leaders to let us be able to do. But the question becomes, what is a peaceful and quiet godly and dignified life what is he calling us to do exactly paul says it's why i preach paul says it's why i've been called it's what god wants from us it's what the world needs from us but what in the world is it there are a couple of things in this passage but the first one deals with men now you might think today we're just going to deal with the men issue here ladies you can just kind of wander off if you want to except the younger ladies want you to listen to this because when you're going to decide the kind of guy to marry, I want you to listen to what we talk about today. Lots and lots of guys in the world, but not all of them are living this way. This is the kind of person you want. So we go to verse 8 when he says, What I wish, or I'm asking for, my desire then in every place is that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling without fussing and fighting. This is about prayer in public. It's about all of worship in general. It's about what they should be doing in their private lives as well. He wants 
our expression physically in prayer to be an overall posture of holiness in the rest of our lives. Apparently, it was common for these Ephesian men to be pretty, to be pretty verbose and they'd be pretty animated in their discussions. We know from the book that you've got some teachers who believe this interpretation of Old Testament and some that believe this, and they get to fussing and fighting over the interpretation. And then they bring their personalities into it, and these men are being angry at each other, and it's coming across as a quarrel even in the assembly of the church where it should be peace and love and calm, there is chaos and tension that you can feel. And I'd like to think this is an exception, but listen to what James says in James chapter 4, talking to these churches he's writing to. What causes the quarrels and the fights among you? What? The churches are fussing. You have these passions in you. you got things that you want, you want to do, and you want to experience, things that you want and you desire, and you, but you don't have, and so you murder, you covet, you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You, this happens even on Sunday mornings, and you can feel the tension with a knife. Let me have a show of hands again. How many have ever been to a church where this has actually happened? You've witnessed it. You might think, this doesn't happen in church, y'all. For some reason, the church is one of those places where people let their emotions get the best of them, and they go at it with each other. I know this never happens in Jonesboro, Arkansas, but I want you to know what happened in the first century. Ha, 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 ha. I've witnessed one as a kid. Small church. Not many people come in one time. I can't remember if it's worship services or if it's just kind of like a business meeting, but both sides were at each other. There's a few on this side and a few on that side, and they were going at it. And I'm thinking, these are the people that love me on Sunday morning. These are the people that I'm around all the time. And I think when they get up and they read scripture and they talk and they sing these songs, and then I come in here and they act like this, that's what the world thinks. God says that has no business taking place in the church. Now, we don't have that. You know, so We don't have that at Valley View, right? Well, doesn't mean it always will be this way. Seems crazy, but this thing called church stirs up tension and strife. This passage, this verse, verse 8, entire sermon built on one verse. Can't be very long, right? <laughs> right, right. But it would be, this would say you can lift up prayer, hands in prayer. If you want to lift up your hands in prayer, I don't care. There's a verse for it. But it would absolutely require that if you are going to lead prayer, men, it needs to be backed by a life of holiness. It needs to reflect the truth of your actual life. There can't be a huge dichotomy between the way you live out there and then you come in the doors and suddenly you become this holy leader and then you go and you leave and you go back to that life and you overcharge and you have rent on slums and you have all this other stuff going on. That stuff can't happen. That's not the way it's supposed to be. This is to be a reflection, a commitment, a covenant that you honor with the rest of your life, an expression that flows out of what's already real. And if you don't think this is a, a thing... Listen to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You know this verse, right? Beware. Jesus said it because he saw it. And in fact, he said it because he saw it. And he saw it as the norm in the first century with the Pharisees. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. You want to be appearing holy when you're not really. Christianity and spirituality is something that can be easily faked. 
It's just the nature of it. We dress up in suits and we have ties. And we look like we got it all together and we sing these wonderful songs, but it's easy to do that for an hour on Sunday and it have no bearing whatsoever on the rest of our lives. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and they hold up their hands and they pray ornate prayers that are beautiful. But man, what he says later on is on the inside, it's like dead men's bones. Man, the danger that's represented in coming in here and being fake. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, can I tell you, we're all guilty to a certain extent. Every one of us has hypocrisy in us because we get together and we do believe in rooting out sin and living holy lives, but each one of us has our struggles. This is not about if you struggle, don't lead. That's not what it is. If you're struggling, it gives you the qualification to do it because you are intending to be holy even when you struggle with areas where you aren't. That's very part, that's true. You've got repentance and you've got, you've got forgiveness. We sing songs that we can't possibly live up to. I surrender all. How many have done that? Is there one hand? I'll I'll never forsake my Lord. What about the fourth verse? None of self and all of thee. Have you ever sung that verse? And as you sing that verse, do you feel like you should shut your mouth? Like there's no way I've gotten there. See, uh, to, to look at it one way, we'd say we can never sing those songs or those verses. To look at it another way, what we are doing is we are singing an aspiration we hope to achieve. We're wanting to pursue, and I'm in pursuit of this. I'm not arriving here, but y'all, I've got to put this as a dream in my head. I've got to put this as a target to shoot for, and I want to live that way, and I intend to. And I'm here on Sunday to say to myself and to others, this is, a, is an image I want to be held accountable to. I want to pursue this. But if you leave and you have no intention of actually doing it, your entire worship has been a fake, a phony, a fraud. Speaking on the Sermon on the Mount of these, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount of these things, Jesus says a couple other things. Here's, here's one of them. If you're offering your gift, I want you to read this. If you're going to lead prayer before God's people leading them before the throne of God. And there you remember your brother has something against you that's open-ended. Leave your gift before the altar. What would that be? Leave your gift before the altar. Go and be reconciled. Then come and offer. I'm wondering, as you're going up to lead prayer and you realize, listen, I, I, I don't even have an intention. I have this, this conflict that's open. I have an, I have, and for some reason, y'all, for some reason worship is the time where God often brings those deficiencies right to the forefront we can keep them at a distance for a long time but in prayer in prayer God seems to man he's annoying at this when you're praying in conversation with him he has a tendency to bring reminders to your brain that's the whole point of prayer actually not just for you to say something to God it's for God to say something to you. And you've got to give him time to do it. And prayer is often the time when he does it. And so you're sitting in prayer and it dawns on you, there's this deficiency in my life that I have no intention of actually messing with, right? No intention of actually honoring. Stop praying, go fix it and come back. Or use that prayer to motivate that. And then he says in this 
sample prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. You pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if you forgive those who are quarreling with you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't, the flow of forgiveness that comes from the throne of God is stopped and you're in deep trouble. Your prayers, y'all, are a very sensitive thermometer of your life. When spiritual infection comes into your life, spiritual infection of something, somewhere you're in rebellion, somewhere you are in disobedience, you're in blatant disrespect of the Word of God, and and you didn't pay any attention to it, God has this tendency through prayer to bring it to you. It is a very sensitive thermometer that brings up anything amiss in your life, and God wants it to be that way. He designed it for that. That's why often we don't like it. And we don't do it. It gets even worse for us men. First Peter chapter 3. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding, courteous way. Showing honor to her as the weaker vessel. Physically, you are not to dominate her or stand over her in, 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 in intimidation and abuse. You don't do that. You, you, you are gentle and kind and accommodating to her since they are heirs with you the grace of life so that what your what's it say y'all so that your prayers won't be hindered I just wonder if there's a man in here who's being abusive to their wife and you come up here to lead prayer does that prayer by any of us get heard I wonder that I'm not talking about somebody whose marriage isn't perfect. Listen, none of us have a perfect marriage, and we're working on it certain, and you're working on it, and you both know it, and you're, you're prayerful about it. But listen, if there's anybody who's just pulled out all the stops and says, you know what, I'm abusive, and that's the way I am, and that's the way my marriage is going to be, your prayer is not heard, period. That's what the verse says. Boy, coming up these steps to lead prayer demands a lot, doesn't it? No wonder so many men are not willing to do it. The Old Testament believers knew this too. They got good at mastering compartmentalization. My life here is here. My life over here is here. My work life, my home life, my school life, church life. It's all, I keep it all separate. And I know the rules that apply to each one. And I'm a master at figuring out where I'm at and mastering that particular place keeping them separate. And God says, there is no separation. I don't see in compartments. You may live that way, but that's not what I see. And so here's what he says in Isaiah chapter 1. When you come to appear before me, when you come to my temple, where God's people are gathered, who has required of you this trampling of my... Why do you come in like a bull in a china shop? Why do you come in here like an elephant just and messing things and not taking into account the holiness of this place? So bring no more of your offerings, your vain offerings. Don't bring the incense anymore, the incense that God, he demanded of them and they brought it. They did worship perfectly, y'all. They did the five acts and they did it exactly the way it should be done. And yet God was repulsed by it because it was a performance. It was this like, this like a, a special little skit I'm doing in my life before I return back to my normal life. Get rid of the new moon, Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure the iniquity, the solemn assembly. 
Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates them, God says. They become a burden to me. I cannot stand to watch you perform any more. When you spread out your hands, they've lifted up their hands in prayer. When you spread out your hands, I am not going to watch you. I'm not going to look. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Talk to the hand. I'm not watching. I'm not listening because your hands are full of blood. And here's the conclusion. Not that you don't worship anymore, but here's the conclusion. You need to wash yourselves. I want to see that you're really trying to live clean. Keep yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct the oppressed. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. If you're not going to live holy out there, don't come in here and perform. There's a danger in preaching this. I got it from the early service because the communion in the early service is afterwards. And Kyle Madden had the communion. And he came up to me and he said, I didn't want to come up there. After all you said, I'm worried about coming up there. I, I do not mean to say you have to be perfect, flawless, absolutely shiny clean in every way before you can ever do anything to climb up these steps and lead. But listen, if you're double-minded and double-hearted and you have no intention of turning your life over to God, you're going to struggle all your life and you're going to struggle with sin all your life. It's not the struggling with sin that's the problem. It's when you don't anymore. It's when you're comfortable with it, when you're fine to play the game out there, and then you're going to come in here and play by these rules, and you think you can keep both games separate from each other. That's when it becomes a problem. There needs to be a sense, because you are a leader, because you are a male leader in your home and at church, when sin and when quarreling and when conflict and when passions like anger arise, you have an extra responsibility to take care of them properly in the eyes of God by the power of the Spirit. You cannot let them go unchallenged. You cannot rest content with them. You cannot sign a peace treaty with your lust. You must fight against it with every fiber of your being. That's what a man of God does. If you're angry and contentious, you come to the church and it comes out in your demeanor or your tone, it gets ugly really fast. The world doesn't need to see us that way. Not getting along. Being a soapbox where we air out our grievances. God wouldn't be pleased with it either. God wants to be pleased with us, and he will be, even with an imperfect prayer offered by an imperfect person who's striving to be holy as best he can. What bothers him is when people play the game with no intention of bringing their lives into a single-hearted devotion to him. That really, really bothers him, and the world doesn't need to see that kind of hypocrisy, that kind of of hypocrisy. Men need to pray. Men need to worship. Men need to lead in worship. Men need to prepare for that leadership by pursuing spiritual maturity in all of their lives. You will struggle with sin and interpersonal conflict. God isn't expecting you to be perfect, but he's called you to try to engage with his power through his spirit to really do a holy life. So you prepare to lead prayer by living out repentance and forgiveness, keeping your hands clean. This is the claim on your life, men. 
whether you're married or single, old or young. When you're converted in the waters of baptism and you rise to walk a new life, one facet of the new life as a man of God is this mantle of male spiritual leadership that was built into creation and is part of the new creation. How it has been done went south in a hurry. Words like headship and submission are so confusing and so abused in the world that nobody wants to hear them anymore, and they want to erase them out of the text. And I get it, y'all, because we are imperfect at doing this, but don't throw it out because there's people who've abused it. Don't throw it out, and the world wants us to. They're saying, look, it doesn't work. Marriage with male headship doesn't work. It doesn't work because we've not been faithful to it, but don't throw it out. It is the call of God that you have to embrace as a man. The two abuses, in Genesis chapter 2, he lays it out and he shows it in narrative form. In Genesis chapter 3, he says, listen, I'm going to tell you this. It's going to be abused. It's going to be absolutely distorted beyond recognition because of the sin that now you have chosen to live by. As you live in a sinful world, this is going to be abused. Men, instead of spiritually leading out of service, are now going to abuse and dominate. And women are going to resent it and want to take over the male role. That's exactly how history has shown it with these two abuses. Number one, men will be dominant. Men will say, you'll call me Lord. You'll call me head. I'm the boss. I make the decisions here. And boom, boom, boom. And that kind of abuse that even gets so, so bad as physical abuse is one terrible distortion that God never intended this to be. But don't, because of that, throw the whole concept out. Instead, honor the one example that's right. You be like Jesus, men, with the church. There's one guy who got it right, and that's the model we follow. Here's the second one that's more common today than it used to be. It's called sloth. The man thinks he's the boss. He has the privileges, and his wife... His wife has to do the work of serving. And so he comes in at the end of the day after she's worked hard during the day too. He sits in his recliner. She prepares the meal. She washes the stuff. She gets the kids ready for bed. And it's a part of his male spiritual leadership that she has to do all that work. And that is absolute baloney while he plays video games, while he does nothing. And I hear women all the time, listen, in, in marital counseling, the number one problem is not the domination, not my experience. My experience, it's the sloth. She's saying, if he wants to lead, do something. Don't just sit there. Do something that shows leadership. If you're going to lead in prayer publicly, there needs to be as a demonstration of that same leadership of the male at home. Get those hands that are raised in prayer in the dishwater. Get it with the diapers. Get it in the bathtub. Get it putting the kids to bed and getting up to feed them at night sometimes. That's male spiritual leadership too. And if there's none of that, but there's this at church, talk about confusing. Talk about calling into question how genuine that is. Domination and sloth. This verse is telling us God is pleased when men practice this spiritual service leadership. They pray, they worship with hands up to God. It flows out of a life that their, their entire life is trying to be devoted to Him. 
And we've stressed this so many years over the years as just the hour of worship, this one hour where we're visible and men have all this leadership. Like that's the whole thing. Listen, this is a mantle that you take home with you. This is a mantle that you take home, men, and you, you live it out in all the practical ways of parenting and the work roles in the house and the financial and the relational difficulties that come up. You need to be a servant leadership and all those roles too. And when you've done that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it looks altogether natural to your entire family when you do this on Sunday. But if you don't, it looks awfully suspicious. I should expect, I think, this is, this is not just elders, deacons, and a select few preachers. That's not how God intended it. It's every male believer who wants to honor God. You all have this mantle on you. Needs to be reflected. Our culture needs to see this. It pleases God, and our culture, y'all, there's never been a time in history where our culture needed to see this more than right now. We've got to see it. They want to throw out marriage. They want to throw out all gender distinctions. They want to throw it all out because of the abuse over the years. No, don't do that. Instead, come back to God's example of Christ in the church. I think you should be able to expect that when... We do. We have a list, I think somewhere, of all the men who are willing to lead public prayer. This verse tells me every man in here should be working on being able to lead public prayer. And you'll say, I'm not comfortable with that. Get comfortable with it. Work at getting comfortable with it. Because you know what? I'm not real comfortable with the entire male spiritual leadership concept. That is not, I don't care, Mitchell, whether you feel a stirring for this or not. This is a calling, black and white, straight from God on every man. I don't care whether you feel compelled or not. Look at the word and let conviction drive you to this. This is what we're called to do. And I know tomorrow Terry's going to get this call. 80 men have taken their name off the list. We can't possibly get up there. And, I don't know. and that's the danger of this. That's the danger of saying this. I, and it, pr preaching it too hard like you, you got to get, you know, you got to get perfect or something. But over the years, I think it's the idea that we've, lads to leaders, the girls have to go back over there somewhere. That's always felt funny to me as a dad. I just, I feel funny about that. Girls, you got to go back there where you're not seen very much. Guys get to come out here. And, and, but can I tell you, uh, while I, I never feel comfortable with that, I, I feel like that's probably, that's probably the best way to communicate what God's trying to say to us. It's clanky. It's clanky and it's weird and it feels wrong. It feels wrong because I'm a product of my culture. And my culture, listen, this is going to be against our culture for a long time. And it's going to get worse and worse with time when our culture finds it so odd, so odd to have to practice this. But I don't know any other way to please God and also draw the world to a correct view of God than to honor this. But this is not a performance and when young people like Trey get up here to lead off, I want Trey to get used to leading in worship, but I want Trey to know that's expected privately too. Lads to leaders, people, this is not just for a convention. This is not just for a convention. This is not just for a trophy. This is not just for a certificate. 
This is for a God who's called men to lead this way, backed by a life that's legitimately like this as well. I should be able to expect when I drop in on Trey at school that he's practicing spiritual disciplines for his language at school just as much as he is for his song leading at church. It's a burden. This is not something we remind the women, hey, na 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 we get to get up here. I don't know many men who feel that way. And in fact, ask William Gay sometime how hard it is to get men to get up here. You just ask him sometime because men are notoriously spiritually lazy. We are more than happy to let somebody else do it. Which is why I believe, this is not scripture, this is why I believe God called us to do this. It goes against our grain, but it's what God's called us to. And this is an illustration. When you get up and lead here, it's not as a sign of great spiritual, it's a calling, it's an illustration of what you're supposed to be doing out there during the rest of the week and washing the dishes and all those things, as I said before. He told us in the verses right before this, this is exactly why Jesus came and did what he did. He came as a ransom. You know what a ransom is? It satisfies God. It satisfies the human side. Jesus, in his death and all the work he did, satisfied God and satisfied humanity. That's what God called Jesus to do. And in this passage, Paul says, guys, I want you to do the same thing. I want you to please God and give the world what it needs, but it doesn't need your death. It's already got one. What it needs is for you to lead prayer, lifting holy hands to the world that reflects an intention to live it out right in the verses before that. There's a double dipping that's needed. We need men who are more interested in pleasing God than culture. More interested in pleasing God than culture. And we need men who will impress the world with what God has called them to rather than what they're used to already. Let's double dip this week, men. Now that sounds complicated, but it really isn't. There's just one thing called from you. Be a man of prayer, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Live your life that way. And you will please God and you will teach the world the two greatest priorities that we have. And this morning, if you've never responded to God, you've never, you've never accepted his plan for your life because you've never submitted yourself to the will of God, he's calling you even right now. I want you to come before Jesus, bow your knee before him, and call him Lord and be awash in the waters of baptism. And after you do that, when you get out of there, your job is to live pleasing him and teaching the world accurately. And this is one way we do it. May we live our lives fully devoted to him. And if this morning you're called to do something in particular publicly as a relation to that, as an overflow of that, we stand ready to receive you as we stand and as we sing.